0: Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. Now let's jump into the the message. We're in this series called The Intentional Life. How do we live a meaningful and fulfilling lives for God? And we've been You know, there's so many passages. I mean, the whole Bible has lots to say about this subject, and there's so many passages we could look at, but I've been restricting myself for this series to Genesis 1 and 2, which, as we saw last week, I showed you how Genesis 1 and 2 are like God's mission statement, his vision statement. Just like most organizations and businesses and churches nowadays have a mission statement, a vision statement, Genesis 1 and 2 are kind of like a mission statement for humanity. They tell us why we're here and what we're here for. And so last week, we looked specifically at Genesis 2. All right, quick review. And in Genesis 2, there are two stories centered around two lacks, which showed us two purposes why we human beings were put here on earth by God. One, to kind of just sum them up, is to work to care for each other and the earth. And the second is to be in relationship with others. Now, what I often find interesting in passages of scripture like this is not just what is in there, but what is not in there. So I want you to, for a moment, forget about this. If someone was to ask you the question, why did God make us as human beings, what would you answer? All right? And most of us, many modern Christians, there's a couple answers that we commonly give. And by the way, I want to tell you right up front, both of those answers are great answers. They're not wrong. They're not bad. So I'm not putting these answers down at all. Okay? They're totally fine. But what I want you to notice is that neither of them is in Genesis 2. And I actually find that very interesting. So if you ask, if most of us, if we ask, why did God make human beings? Most of us modern Christians would answer something like, God made us to worship him. And God made us because he wants to have a relationship with us. And again, I just want to say, that is not a bad answer. It's not a wrong answer. You don't have to feel bad about thinking that. But what I find interesting is neither of those is in the purpose statement that God gave us at the beginning of Genesis as to why he made us. I want you to notice that neither of the stories in Genesis 2, remember we looked at these last week, and they center around a lack. There's a lack of something, God makes something else to fill the lack, and in that we find purpose. Neither of the stories or the lacks centers around something God is lacking, like God is lacking relationships, he was lonely and depressed, so he made human beings to fill that void in his heart. That's not a story there. He does not say, you know, God had a lack of what, you know, God had a lack of compliments, he was feeling bad about himself, so he made human beings to tell him how good he is, and now he can feel good about himself. That's not a story, that's not a lack in Genesis 2 for a purpose. Now, a second reason why I find this super fascinating is because when you look at the context of Genesis, ancient Israel, here's what you have to understand. All of the nations around ancient Israel also had their own creation stories. Why? Because human beings, we're all wired the same. We want to know who made us and why are we here. So all the nations around Israel, ancient Israel, also had their own creation stories That were meant to tell the purpose. Who put us here and why are we here? And what's really interesting when you look at those stories is those stories, the posture of the gods towards human beings is totally opposite of the Bible. In the ancient Near East, in the other creation stories around Israel, the gods all make human beings in order for human beings to. To do stuff for the gods. For example, so one of the common things in the ancient Near East creation stories. Is that the gods hate to work. They need to eat. And so they make human beings because they don't want to cultivate. They don't want to do the hard work of farming. They don't want to do the hard work of harvesting. They don't want to do any of that. So in many of the ancient Near East religions. The gods create human beings to do all of that manual labor they don't want to do. And then the human beings can feed the gods. Now you wonder... How did they think they could feed the gods? That was the whole reason for sacrifices in the ancient world. We're used to thinking of sacrifices. Modern Christians are used to thinking about sacrifices as being something you offer for sin. But that's because we have the Bible. In the ancient Near East, they did not offer sacrifices for sin. They thought that by burning meat and bread... And wine or whatever on an altar that somehow that food was consumed and as it went up in smoke, it was transferred into the realm of gods and somehow fed them. Now think of how that changes everything about what you think about work and about God and about yourself. If you think you've been placed on earth by the gods because they don't want to work and they want you to work to feed them. And if you don't feed them properly, they're going to get mad and you're going to suffer. So opposite perspective in terms of why we're here, selfish perspective versus selfless in the ancient Near East, God's created human beings for selfish reasons to take care of their needs. In Genesis, God's reasons for creating human beings have nothing to do with his needs. Isn't that interesting? It has nothing to do with his needs. God's reasons for creating humans have nothing to do with his needs or what we can give him. He, other reasons beyond himself. So we have selfish versus selfless reasons for creation. Now this becomes a much bigger theme. And again, this is going to lead us into worship because we want to talk about worship today. But we have to first understand why we worship because it also matters to God why we worship. And this becomes a huge theme throughout our Bible is this idea over and over again throughout scripture is God doesn't need anything from humans. I'll just show you one example. Psalm 50 says this, and it's a whole chapter about this, but it starts out, or it doesn't start, this is verse 9, but we'll just look at this, and then we'll go back and look at some other verses too. But he says this, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. God does not need stuff. Now, Ancient people thought he did. Now, modern people were like, well, of course, he doesn't need a bull or whatever else. Or stuff. But ancient people did think this. And it was confusing to the Israelites sometime. And now the writer of Psalms is going to give two reasons why God doesn't need anything from us. First reason, for every animal of the forest is mine. And a cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. So the first reason God says why he doesn't need anything from us is because he already owns everything. How do you give something to someone who already owns everything? Those of you, I mean, it's Mother's Day. Those of you who've ever had or have right now young kids, have you ever given, and I guess for for this weekend, maybe dads, how many of you have ever given your kids money so that they can either buy yourself a gift for something, or they can buy their mother a gift for Mother's Day. How, well, we want to, I mean, yeah, let's put up a hand. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Okay, a few of you, right? So, you give now, okay, and then it's Mother's Day, and now the mom gets the gift from them. And clearly, it's her own money that has provided for this <laughs> gift. How do you give someone, something to someone who already, everything you've ever given to God was already his. And God actually wants the Israelites to keep that in mind. How do you give something to someone who already owns everything? Unless the giving is more about what it does to me as I give it to God. But there's a second reason that God has no physical needs. He says this, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, right? So even if he could get hungry, which he can't. But even if he would, he said, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In the ancient world, they did think the gods were finite and physical and had needs like tiredness and stuff. But our God says, I don't eat. I don't need physical sustenance. I am infinite. I don't need to sleep. I don't get tired and I don't get hungry. We cannot give to God anything that would meet a need He doesn't have needs. Now, what's interesting in Psalm 50 is the problem is why they're sacrificing, not that they're not sacrificing. I think sometimes, again, as modern Christians, we often think God's biggest problem has to do when we don't give him enough. But that comes from ancient strains of thought that make us think that God needs something from us. But the problem here in Psalm 50, we're going to go back now. I want you to see this. And I want you to see the problem here that God has with Israel is not that they're not giving him enough sacrifice. They give him lots of sacrifice. Look at this. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. They're bringing lots of sacrifices. Lots and lots of sacrifices. You say, well, God, that's good enough. He's like, I don't care about that. See, we we think he wants, it's just give him lots because he needs something. He's like, I don't need any of that. The problem is not, by the way, I looked this week. And I didn't have long enough to look that I can say with 100% confidence. But I looked this week to see if anywhere in the Old Testament, God is ever upset at Israel for not giving him enough sacrifice. And I couldn't find any examples. that doesn't mean. Now, one of you, that could be a homework assignment. Prove Chris wrong. You might be able to go out and find an example where God is mad at Israel for not giving him enough sacrifice. He wants more and you're not giving him enough. But the vast majority of the time in in the Old Testament, they're giving him enough. They're giving him lots of sacrifice. The problem is not that they're not giving him enough. The problem is that they're doing it for the wrong reasons or living really disgusting lives and then showing up to give sacrifices anyway. So, the problem is not quantity because God has no needs. And you say, What is the big deal about this? And the big deal is the same is true about worship. And if we don't know why we worship, if we think that we're worshiping God in order to meet some need in Him, we're going to end up worshiping out of guilt. Or we're gonna end up worshiping out of some kind of condescending, like pat God on the back. We don't really want to do this, but we know you need it. And it actually matters to God. I don't need all this sacrifice. Why are you doing this? Now, as moderns, we know that God doesn't need physical needs, but we need to answer another question. It's clear to us as moderns, God is invisible, God is infinite. It's clear to us that he would not need to eat or he would not need to sleep, that there is no way we could give him something for a physical need. But a little bit of that ancient thinking affects us even still today about God because I think a lot of us, whether consciously or subconsciously, actually do think that God does need something, but it's more on the emotional side. And the question we have to answer is, does God need love and companionship? Now that's a bit of a harder one. And right away, I, I can feel it. It's like, well, I mean, he's a relational God. Yes, he's a loving God. Clearly, the way Chris is sort of going in this sermon, it's probably not good to think of God as having needs. So it's kind of a weird, it's, we feel a little bit uncomfortable maybe this question. He's relational, he's loving, but does that mean he needs love or companionship? Does he need those things from us? And by the way, I think this is one reason, not the only reason, I think this is one reason. So many modern Christians deal with so much guilt about their worship and love for God. Where does guilt come from? I'll tell you one place it comes from. Obligation. I feel a sense of obligation. Someone else needs something from me, and if I don't give them what they need, I feel guilty because they need something from me and they can't get it from me or I haven't given them enough. So I think some of our Christian guilt... I'm not worshiping God enough. I'm not loving God enough. Is coming, whether we consciously think through it or not, is coming from a place of thinking, God needs love for me and I haven't given him enough. He needs time with me. I haven't given him enough time. But is that actually the case? Let's explore this for a moment, then we'll go to Scripture. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why it's scary The moment we think that God needs something from us. First of all, if God needs love and relationship from you, think of how scary that is. What would happen if enough of us forget bad stuff goes on in the world, too much, or we just one week, there's so much awesome stuff on social media, and a bunch of us forget to tell God we love him enough for a week? If God needs love and companionship is he going to get insecure? If we have a bad week on the earth of telling, not telling God we love him enough, does he start to get worried? Does he start to look in the mirror and wonder if he's enough? Does he, this is actually I'll tell you why it's a little bit scary. It puts us back in the world, in the ancient world where you thought if I don't meet the God's needs they're going to get mad at me. Like if I don't if the gods get hungry because I'm not feeding them or tired because I'm not housing them well enough, they're going to do bad things to me. It's a scary thought to think that God could ever get depressed or anxious or insecure because his joy and his godness rests on us doing something for him. That's actually... A scary thought and it brings up another thought and that is this what was happening in eternity before God created the world and human beings have you ever thought about that have you ever laid at home at night I'm one of those messed up people there's so little practical things I can do in this world but I can work myself up into a tizzy and I would do it as a kid lying in bed at night trying to think of how God could have no beginning and you try to go back And what was he doing for all the billions and trillions of years before he created the earth, before he created human beings? Was he depressed and isolated? Oh, oh. and then finally, after trillions and trillions and trillions of endless years, he decides, I know, I'll make human beings to love me, and then I'll feel good about myself. No, for 2,000 years, Christian thinkers, and before that, Jewish thinkers, have all agreed... That when God created the Earth, he did not create it out of a sense of need. Here's one famous person from history, C.S. Lewis, that we know as moderns. C.S. Lewis is so well known to us modern evangelicals, he's almost as good as the Bible. So I quoted him. Almost, not quite. God is not, he says, like a vain woman. Now, he was a bit of a sexist, a product of his time, okay? But he should have said man and woman, okay? So, but anyway, God is not like a vain woman or man. He didn't have everything together. Wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new books to people who had never met or heard of him. In other words, C.S. Lewis is making a point. And he, this is in a book that he's writing a, a bit of a, just a casual commentary on the Psalms, reflections on the Psalms. And he says the reason we worship, like a lot of Christians get trapped in this idea. We're worshiping God because he needs to hear me say I love him. He needs his love tank. If I don't spend enough time with him, if I don't say enough nice things to him, he feels bad. And because he feels bad, I feel guilty. I'm not meeting my obligations to God. But the fact of the matter is that is far too small of a picture of God. And we regularly, and that's part of the reason we do church, we regularly need to be reminded that God is much bigger than we think he is and he does not need us i want you to look at how big paul's picture of god is he has no needs and it's not just physical it includes emotional it's everything he says this in acts 17 the god who made the world and everything in it is the lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands so he just that's it for the ancient times but he does not live all the stuff we do for god he doesn't need And he goes on, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself. Now, this is the thing where if you want to start to even begin to scratch the surface of understanding God a little bit, this is the line. Rather, he himself gives everyone, by the way, not just those who believe in him. He is the source of everything, whether you believe in him or not. He himself gives everyone life and breath, and just in case we're missing anything, and everything else. Which, now I wish, I took this part of the sermon, and then I ended up rabbit trailing in the first, and I'm going to do it again in the second. If you go back to Genesis 2, and the whole mission statement story of creation. You know what's fascinating? So in the ancient Near East creation stories, the gods make humans so that the humans can work and feed the gods. In the Genesis 2 story, the opposite happens. God makes people because he wants someone to be able to take care of the earth and steward it. But then it says that God planted a garden with trees with every good fruit to eat and he puts man in the garden. In Genesis 2, God provides the stuff that the man eats. In other words, God did not create humans because he needs us to do something for him in order for him to feel joy. It's God's joy to provide for us. Our relationship with God in terms of need is all one way. We need him. He does not need us. So let me use an illustration to help us kind of grab a hold of this. I've used this one before. And I'm going to use it again because I just like it. And I want to compare God to the sun for just a little bit. So the sun is this huge massive star 90 some million miles away from us. Right? And compared to Earth, it is massive. All right? 1.3 million of our planet Earths could fit inside the sun. 1.3 million. And just remember, the Earth isn't small. Any of you, I mean, we live in Canada. Any of you who's road tripped to the West Coast, that's a, and if you've done it with little kids, that's a long way. <laughs> right? And that's only half the width of our country, not even! And that's not even close. You're not even scratching the surface of how big around the earth is. So the earth is big. If you've been to the Grand Canyon. I remember when and I went to the Grand Canyon a few years ago. And by the way, it's one of those places. You know how lots of places on earth don't actually meet your expectations? The Grand Canyon is one of those places that we had high expectations and then it exceeded. And I'll never forget. I don't even know really why I'm telling this story right now. But anyway, I'll just finish it. But... So we came into the airport, and we rent this car, and the guy's like, so why are you guys in Phoenix? And we're like, well, we want to go see the Grand Canyon. He says, that's a big hole. And then, and I just love, that was my favorite thing, I think, of the whole trip, that's a big hole. But then you get there, and it's, it's huge, right? And that's just a tiny crack on Earth's surface. And 1.3 million Earths can fit in the sun. And so I like to do weird math, just for the fun of it. And I was trying to figure out if someone threw the earth at the sun, like if someone took the planet earth and threw it at the sun, what would that feel like to the sun? So I did some math. And because I wanted to find some ratios. And this is what I came up with. All right. So take a ping pong ball. You all know what a ping pong ball is. You drop a ping pong ball in your hand. You just get a little tap. Your hand doesn't Your hand doesn't move. It's not like, you know, if you drop a bowling ball, your hand cushions. You drop a ping pong ball, it doesn't move. You're not flexing your arm. It just, you feel it gone. Now imagine something a tenth, ten times lighter than a ping pong ball. Whatever that object is, ten times lighter than a ping pong ball, someone takes it and whips it at you, you will probably hardly be able even to feel it if you don't see it coming. That is what it would be like if someone hurled the planet Earth at the sun. It'd be like something 10 times lighter than a ping pong ball hitting it. Did that land? Kind of an idea? Big? Small? Whatever. Not really. Okay. (laughs) Good enough. The point is the sun is really big. The Earth is really, really tiny. Now imagine, all right? Now every second, every second of every day, day in, day out, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, year after year, every second, the sun is burning up five million tons of fuel. Another five million burned. Another five million burned. Another five million burned. Five million tons every second of nuclear fuel and blows it all out into the universe the vast majority of that 5 million tons of fuel burned with nuclear fusion or fission, it's one of them anyway. Yeah, okay, there, that's the one. 5 million tons of it burn every second. The vast majority of it is wasted. It just goes out into the universe, just gone. And only a little bit of it lands on tiny little planet Earth. And yet, that little bit of it is a massive amount of energy, enough to fuel all the life that we have on planet Earth. Without that little bit of energy hitting us, we would be a cold, dark rock. That's the sun. Now, imagine, first of all, let me ask you a question. Now, with all that in mind, do you ever just look outside on a day like today, it's just beautiful, and we close the blinds so you wouldn't have, like, envy of, like, I wish I was out there, not in there, not here, but, you ever just sit inside on a beautiful spring day, maybe you're at work and you can't get out, and you look outside and you think to yourself, man, the sun is working hard today, I wonder if it's going to run low on heat and light. Like, it just gives and gives and gives and gives, and then you find out there's enough fuel in the sun to keep going for five billion years, which for our lifespans is just almost like eternity. But imagine someone came along and said, okay, whoa. But actually the sun is starting to get a bit low. We need to give something back. The sun needs you. We start putting posters up everywhere. The sun needs you. So it goes out, the call goes out on Facebook and Instagram and Snap stuff and all that. Right? And the call goes out. Today, we are all going to build massive bonfires in our backyards because the sun needs you. And we're all going to gather our flashlights. I'm going to turn them on. and We're going to point them at the sun because the sun needs some heat and light back from us, back to it. And you would laugh, that is ridiculous. Because we could all build the biggest fires we wanted and point all of our piddly little flashlights at the sun. And it is so puny and pathetic. It makes absolutely no difference. In fact, none of that heat, we're all standing there... Go up to the sun. None of the heat or the light reaches the sun. You cannot give to the sun. You can only receive from the sun. Now think about this. If God exists, and I believe he does, and he is infinite, which I believe if he's God, he has to be, the difference between him and us is way bigger than the sun to the earth. And you think he's fretting? He was fretting before he made the earth, because he's like, oh, I'm just so lonely. You think you could give him something that he's running low of? And here's the thing about the sun, when you sit at work during the day and outside it's sunny and warm, you don't feel guilty, I feel bad. I wonder if the sun's feelings are hurt, I'm inside. You don't do that, and yet you go outside anyway. But you don't go out because you're worried about the sun. You go out because you just want to bask in the sun. You want to feel the sun on your skin, not because the sun needs you, but because you and I need the sun. You want to enjoy the life and the plants that the sun fuels We don't go out, though, because we feel bad for the sun. We go out or out of guilt. We go out because we need the sun. So why do we allow it to creep in from time to time as if God is insecure, that he somehow needs it from us? We sit inside and we think to ourselves, oh, poor God, I think I'm letting him down. And we feel guilty and we beat ourselves up. And the answer is not to feel guilty as if he needs something. The point is that we are drawn out. We need to experience his love, not because he needs something from us, but because it's wonderful. Now, God is not a physical star giving off physical light and heat. But he is a son of a different kind, not S-O-N, but S-U-N. But he is a son of God is love. He's not radiating out physical light and heat he is literally the source of love in the universe and he radiates out love first john says god is love not he's not a jar with love and when he gives it out he runs low he is the stuff in the jar he is love he's like a massive sun burning this love out and Every time we experience love, all love ultimately comes from God. If it wasn't for God, there would be no love in the universe. Now, the question is, well, how do we experience God? With the sun, it's easy. We just go outside and we can feel it because the sun is physical and we have physical bodies. How do we feel God's rays and love? Well, the next line in this verse tells us something very profound. Whoever lives in love lives in God. Now we read these words in 1 John, and we just kind of read them when we move on. Oh, yeah, good. God is love. He's love. He's loving. We love. Great. But think about this God is love. And then whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. So, how do we experience God? You want to experience the sun, you go outside and you feel the sun's rays. You want to experience God? And this is, by the way, isn't this a question quite unique to modern Christianity? Not totally, but there's this question of, like, how do I experience God? And usually what we mean by that, not bad, by the way, often what we mean by that, how do I experience more of God, we mean some sort of, like, mystical, sort of emotional, maybe, experience which are wonderful, but something that happens while we're praying or while we're at church or something spiritual, and then we feel it's like mystical experience. And by the way, those mystical experiences are wonderful and amazing, and many human beings will have some of those, and depending on who you are, some will have more, some will have less, will have some of those in your lifetime, and we can be grateful for them. But notice here, it does not say God is a mystical experience. It says, God is love. If you want to experience more of God, what do you got to do? Whoever lives in love lives in God. What if every time we love or are loved, what if this, tr- what if this verse is actually true? It's in the Bible after all. What if every time we give love, Or receive love we are experiencing a bit of God because he is love that love that you have for your kid ultimately originates with God ultimately God is loving through you even just like the Sun even if you don't believe in the Sun the Sun's heat and light still keeps us alive even if you don't believe in God God is the source of love in the universe what if that work, that you know, that coworker that took that shift for you last minute and it was so helpful, that feeling of relief and joy and like oh love, like thank you, what if you experience a little bit of God's love right there, and you're still looking for something else? I haven't experienced God recently, or what if that connection you made eye contact? with a waiter or waitress, you said thank you when they spilled something, and you blessed them, and that feeling you got, and that feeling they got, God is love. Ultimately, that love came from him, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. That is good news. The good news is you and I are already experiencing God. And the even better news is you and I can experience him more and more and more by choosing to be open and to love and to receive love and to be connected. By the way, again, back to sometimes we get sidetracked on this thing If I want to experience God and we're thinking of something different from loving. I want to go back to a passage we looked at last week. And I want to show you the priority of love as the means through which we experience God. First Corinthians 13. And already it's like, oh, I, yeah, right. Exactly. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels. Not that it's bad to speak in the tongues of men or of angels. Great. Spiritual experiences are great. Miraculous spiritual experiences are great. But do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, again, miraculous gifts, great. Nothing wrong with that. You want to go after that? But guess what? I can move all mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. What if God is way more present in our lives than we ever imagined, and it's in the everyday acts of love, two verses later? Love is patient. Love is kind. And he goes on and on and on and on. What if these, what if these are the sun's rays on our skin? God is love, and love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. You want to experience more of God this week? You can start tonight and just start doing these. Be open to it. Now, the question is, okay, but what about worship? And this is where things get a little bit confusing. Because we use worship, that word, usually in a very narrow sense, which means what we do at church when we sing. By the way, very important piece of worship. And a wonderful thing that we do as part of our basking in the sun. But it's so much bigger than just that. But now let's talk about that. So now why do we worship and praise God with our words? If God doesn't need, he's not feeling bad about himself and I got to pump his tires a bit. So why do we do it at all then? Here's the foundation now. And I have to do a part two to this and we'll get more into kind kind of some of praise and worship and worship and all that sort of stuff. But first you just have to have the foundation. Here's the foundation of worship. This is why we worship. And remember, worship is so much bigger than just singing. But it is that. The foundation of worship. Changing our focus from ourselves outward to sense the greatness of God. You don't worship because God's going to fall apart if you don't. You worship because when that happens, you get to enjoy God. It's like coming out of the office and getting out in the sun. Finally, it's Manitoba. We get Three weeks of really nice weather. Oh, so good. Soak up the vitamin D. In the same way, worship is not so God doesn't fall apart. Worship is reminding ourselves that he is the sun and we are planet earth and we are puny. And he is burning with love for us. And it is his joy to give to us. There is nothing, no need we can meet in him. Have you ever sat out under a really, like, a clear starry sky where there's no moon, you know, to mess up the lighting or city lights or whatever? But you just, you know those nights where it's, like, super clear and there's the stars out? And you either lie under them or you sit. I've loved this ever since I was a kid. But you just look out at the stars and you think to yourself, I mean, those stars are... They're not hundred miles away. They're not a thousand miles away. They're not a million light years or a year, a million miles away. They're a million light years away. And if you just stare long enough, at least for me, you get this sense of like, oh my goodness, the universe is just so vast. It's so big. You get this like sense of awe. Oh, how puny we are. It's that same. It's that same thing you get when you are on a mountain. You go on a beautiful hike. And you're on this mountain. You look out, or when you stand at the edge of the. Grand Canyon, you realize if I fell in there, I would just fall and fall and fall before I would die. But <laughs> it's so huge and so vast, and I'm so tiny. That feeling is just a little bit of a glimpse of what worship is meant to be. And did you know that they're do- like, scientific research actually confirms this now? They're doing research into what they call the feeling of awe this feeling of vastness. When people cultivate a feeling of vastness, you stand on a mountaintop, you look at a starry sky, and you feel how tiny you are. It has been shown now in a number of studies that this does a number of amazing things in your body. First of all, it touches a part of your brain that is tied to negative self-talk and criticism and self-judgment. And it turns it off short-term. But you get this feeling of, oh, I'm so tiny. And literally the part of your brain that judges yourself, that inner critic, that voice of like, oh, I don't like myself, I don't like how I look, I don't like who I am, and it turns it off. Why? Because anxiety and shame and self-centeredness are these inward, tiny world voices. I look in, ugh. In worship and awe, we cultivate the out. We look out, and we get this sense of how small I am. And when we do that, weirdly enough, that sense of smallness in comparison to vastness is a destroyer of things like shame and anxiety In fear. Now there are so many things in this world that can help us reach that state of awe. Prayer, praise and worship, nature. There's all kinds of different things. We're going to talk some of the practical stuff in part two. The point for this one is we need more of this than all of this anxious innerness. And so one of the beauties of church is we get to just take 60 seconds of reflection. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want us just to take 60 seconds of just reflection. God is love. He is like the sun except far bigger. He burns with love. And he has no need of anything from you. His only desire is to give to you. He finds immense enjoyment in providing for you and loving you. He is so big, the beauty of his bigness is your badness and the stuff you're ashamed of, your worst badness is tiny. It's like not even a speck compared to his goodness. All of your messed upness is puny. This week, what would happen if we took time every day, just a couple minutes, if you want to do this, think, try this. Take a couple minutes every day, maybe in the morning, maybe at night, whenever you want to do it, and make a list of all the times you had a connection with someone else at the coffee shop, at home, with a friend, with a coworker, all the times you gave or received love in even the most minor ways, you made a little list of that every week, and at the top of that list you call it experiences with God. Thank you, Father, for your immense love for us. And out of that, we bask in your love and goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.